It's good to be back this week. On vacation last week, appreciate your willingness and allowing us to do things like that as a family and take trips. And um, it's good to be back here and be with you again. Um, you know, I was thinking uh, in working through um, the psalm for this morning at uh, at various points in our lives, I think we all come to the place where we ask big questions, big questions, and those the, those big questions. They're the ones that, the questions in which we ponder, you know, the fabric of the universe and the foundation of our existence, things like that. And those questions start when we're, when we're very young. I mean, uh, young children ask questions like, where do babies come from? Every parent loves getting that question, right? Uh, what happens when someone dies? Those are big questions that, that little children ask. And, you know, as we grow and mature and, and increase in our understanding of reality, those questions don't cease, right? They don't. Um, if anything, they expand and they increase. And so we might move on to questions like, what is truth? How did everything come into existence? Um, who is God? I mean, those are, those are big questions that we ask. And, and I think added to that list what will be the, the focus of uh, our study in Psalm 73 today, questions about theodicy. Now, now, even if you don't know the definition of the word theodicy, I promise you, you understand the concept. And, and I would be confident that you've asked questions about theodicy during your life. Mankind has been asking these questions Ever since the sin and suffering and death entered our world through Adam and Eve. So, for example, if we look back at a guy named Epicurus, he lived about 300 BC, and he gave perhaps the most famous statement regarding theodicy. He asked these questions He said, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? then is he not omnipotent? Is he not all-powerful? Is he able but not willing? Then is he malevolent? Is he both able and willing? Well, then why do we see evil? Where does it come from? Or is he neither able nor willing? And if that's the case, why call him God? Those are things that Epicurus pondered 300 BC. And, And to show that questions about theodicy are still asked today, not just back in history. I'll quote another famous philosopher, Lex Luthor, from the movie Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. As Lex Luthor was pondering how evil could exist in the world alongside God, he said, if God's all-powerful, then he can't be all-good. And if he's all-good, then surely he can't be all-powerful. That was the conclusion that that philosopher came to, right? As I said, you don't have to know the, con- the, the definition to the concept of theodicy to ask questions about it. We all look around the world uh, in which we live, we examine what takes place, and we struggle to justify that with what the Bible tells us about God. So maybe we, maybe we don't verbalize the questions. Maybe we do, but we have them. Right? We have those questions inside of us. And in, in Psalm 73, 
the author most definitely reveals his inner thoughts, and he verbalizes a specific question about theodicy, the question of, why do the wicked prosper? That's what he wants to know. Why do the wicked prosper? Now, so if you haven't already, I would encourage you uh, open your Bible, uh, open your Bible app to Psalm 73. We're going to go through that this morning. Um, I was telling Megan the other day as I was working on this psalm that the sermon was basically writing itself. Um, so not only does the psalm address a question that, that all generations ask, um, the psalm is also broken up into three sections, which are all marked by the word truly. Um, and the psalm begins and ends with a common theme focused around the word good. So, man, it has an interesting topic. It's got three points. It's got a cohesive beginning and ending. And what more can a preacher ask for, right? I mean, this is, this is great. It basically writes itself. So. so a couple quick background notes before we dive into the text. Uh, your Bible probably indicates that Psalm 73 begins book number three within the Psalms. So the larger book of Psalms is broken up into five smaller books, and 73 begins the third book. And those smaller books really contain distinct themes, and, and each one is believed to come from a specific period of time in Israel's history. So book three in Psalms is believed to be focusing upon the time after King David's reign. And it's really focused upon the time in between King David and the eventual destruction of the temple and destruction of Jerusalem and, and going into exile in Babylon. That, that, that's the time period that's often in focus. Um, and, and in addition to that, your Bible probably indicates as well that, that this psalm, along with the next ten, are attributed to Asaph. It says at the beginning, a psalm of Asaph. We know from 1 Chronicles chapter 15 that Asaph was a person from the tribe of Levi, who was appointed as a singer and musician to give praise to God, and especially to do so upon the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem during the time of David. Now, whether these psalms are written by Asaph himself or one of his descendants from his line, uh, we're not totally sure. I would lean towards a descendant of Asaph because of the timing of everything, but, but regardless... They're God-inspired words penned by someone who was tasked with giving praise to God in the temple. Whether it's Asaph or his descendants after him who served in the same role, that was the setting for it. And, and I've said before that there's often significance in the order of individual psalms. Psalm 74, which comes after 73, right? It, it focuses on the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, focuses on the destruction of the temple by that evil nation, Babylon. And, and I think Psalm 73, coming before 74, really, really gives a, 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 it sets the foundation of God's goodness as the place from which we should read a psalm like 74, where Babylon is coming in and setting the city on fire and taking people into exile. So, so that's kind of all the, all the, the background information to Psalm 73. Let's dive in this morning and see how the author grapples with this question of theodicy. 
Okay? And, and he begins by stating something that, that he knows to be true from God's word. So that's where he starts. Psalm 73, verse 1. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So I think the author knows from the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, I think he's reflecting back on that, and he knows that God has promised good to his people. And, and specifically, we can, we can reflect on what Moses said to his brother-in-law, who was a foreigner, and Moses said this as the Israelites were getting ready to depart from Mount Sinai for the Promised Land. In Numbers chapter 10, Moses said, We are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will do good to you, for the Lord has promised good to Israel. So I think the author of Psalm 73 is reflecting back on that, that God has promised to be good, to do good to Israel. And, and he's probably not only reflecting on the promises of God, but I think he could reflect on history of Israel as well and see that God had been good. God had proven himself by doing good to Israel through setting them free from Egypt, from the slavery there. He did good to them by giving them the land he had promised to them, by protecting them from enemies that were far superior to them, um, by causing them to flourish once they entered into the promised land. I mean, God had been good to his people as seen in their history, and he had promised to continue to do so. And I think this is what the author is opening with in 73. Truly, God is good to Israel. But as he reflected on those things, he saw something else. He saw something else. He saw something that he had trouble justifying with that statement, that God is good to Israel. He saw something that shook him to his, to, to his core and almost caused him to stumble and fall. So listen to what he said in verse 2 and forward. He said, But... As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind, therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment, their eyes swell out through fatness, their, heart overflow, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. So there's a little bit of foreshadowing going on here. The, the author says in verse 2 that he almost stumbled, and he nearly slipped. So we know that in the end, he didn't. But he's still humble enough to admit that it was a very real possibility as he looked around at what was going on, that he, that, he, that he almost stumbled because of that. And what nearly caused him to stumble and slip was what he considered, uh, what he said in verse 3, the prosperity of the wicked. He made a statement in verse 1 that God is good to Israel. And then he looks around and he sees the prosperity of the wicked and he has trouble. And he almost stumbles and he almost falls. Now, that word in verse 3, prosperity, I, I think that's the correct way to translate the Hebrew word 
there into English. I think that's the right way to do it. But, but when we translate it into English, I think, I think we, it becomes easy to miss the boldness with which that statement is made. The shock value isn't quite there like it would have been in Hebrew. So, so I'm going to read it again and use the original Hebrew word for prosperity and see if it, see if it stirs up any other emotions within you as I read it. So verse 3 again. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the shalom of the wicked. The shalom of the wicked. That the, shalom is that great Hebrew word, that, that concept, that communicates the promise of God to his people to give them peace. I mean, it's so important that that's the greeting that Jews give to one another, shalom. This is something central to Hebrew faith, central to the identity of the Jews. God's shalom, God's peace promised to them. And, and it's not just a peace that is derived from lack of conflict, right? It's a peace that consists of security and provision and wholeness and prosperity, as, as is translated here. So the author looked at the wicked, and by his estimation, they were experiencing shalom. I mean, th that statement is a little bit inflammatory, if you ask me. And he wants to know why the wicked were receiving God's promise instead of God's people receiving God's promise. And, and we kind of miss that in English, but that's what he's saying. Why are the wicked experiencing shalom? And not only were they prospering, experiencing shalom, but they were doing so while being arrogant and prideful about their wickedness. So, uh, you know, they, he says they, they wore pride as a necklace. Their clothes were violence, as, as verse 6 says. So not only were the wicked prospering, but they were, they were, they were doing so, again, prideful, arrogant. I mean, necklace, necklaces, clothes, those are things that a person puts on and they're supposed to be noticed, right? You don't wear a necklace or clothes because you want to hide them. That's not how it works. You want people to see them. You know people will see them. So the wicked are prospering while they flaunt their pride and their violence for all to see. And their words are arrogant as well. They, they set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth, as verse 9 says. Not only are they prideful before man, but they're acting prideful before God himself as well. Are we upset yet? Because we should be. <laughs> this is what the author is saying. God, what is going on? What is happening? I mean, is there any fury within us that a person like that would experience shalom in their life? I mean, this isn't just someone prospering who is oblivious about God. Not at all. This is an arrogant, violent, manipulative, self-absorbed, wasteful, cocky, wicked person prospering. And if that fact isn't infuriating enough, it's all happening under God's watch, right? And look at what he, what he uh, well, we'll wait to go to verse 10. I mean, I, I think one of the great things about the Psalms is that they, sometimes they give us the words to say when we don't know what to say. Psalms will do that for us sometimes. Other times they give us permission to say the words and we know exactly what we want to say, but we're not sure if we can or if we should, right? And, and this is the latter, this is, this is us being given 
permission. The author is saying the very thing that we think in our minds, but might not feel permission to say. We have permission today. Psalm 73 is that permission. We have permission to come before God and ask him why the wicked prosper. We have permission to struggle with the discontinuity of that observation. And we also have permission to worry about ourselves and worry about others around us being tempted to give in to wickedness as the result of that observation, the wicked prospering. Look, at, look now at verse 10. He says, Therefore his people turn back to them, talking about God's people, turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. I mean, the author not only sees the wicked prospering, he sees some of God's people turning toward wickedness. He sees them assuming that God doesn't know what they're doing. That, that he sees them viewing God as weak. They view that, that God doesn't know. He doesn't have the knowledge to understand what they're doing. I mean, after all, if a person can engage in blatant wickedness in this life and still experience shalom, why not? Why not, right? I mean, what is there to stop someone from diving headfirst into evil if shalom can still be the result of that? We'll get to that. We'll get there. But, but first, the author, he sums up his observations in verse 12. He says, The wicked are at ease and increase in riches. So he knows this promise of God, that God is good to his people, he's good to Israel, but he looks around, he sees the wicked prospering, and he says, God, I'm upset. This is what I see. The wicked are at ease. They increase in riches. That's kind of, of a, that's a depressing conclusion, isn't it? That's a depressing conclusion. And I think it's enough to make a person wonder, what's the point? What's the point of striving to be faithful to God if that is the reality? I think that's what the author wondered. Look at verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. I mean... Now, the ESV doesn't translate the Hebrew word here, but, but verse 13 is the second time that the author writes truly. Okay, so, so after looking at the reality of the situation for the wicked, he now looks at the reality of his own situation. Okay, he says, truly, all is in vain. All that he's been doing, his striving to be faithful to God, he says, truly, that's in vain. And like a good, faithful Jew, he, he had done that. He had strived to keep his heart clean. He had washed his hands in innocence. I mean, you might say he had, he had taken the commands of God seriously and tried to keep them to the best of his ability. And remember, Asaph, his descendants, they would have been temple musicians. So they would have been ministering within the temple, which means they would have had to participate in ceremonial washings and other things in order to keep themselves pure so that they could minister before God in the temple. So the author had done that. But when he examines his own striving, he says, truly, it's all in vain. It's all in vain. Even though he's kept his heart clean, he's washed his hands in innocence, he's rewarded with being stricken. And he's rewarded with being rebuked. 
again, permission, right? We're given permission. Haven't we felt that before? I mean, haven't we strived hard in our life, not, not to earn our salvation, not that, but, but in response to salvation, to live in a way that's honoring to God? Haven't we disciplined ourselves and sacrificed ourselves in order to follow God's commands? And haven't we looked around and seen others completely disregard all of that and yet prosper? I mean, we can come up with examples of that, right? So what's the point, right? Why, why put in all that effort if the wicked are going to prosper anyway? Why put in all that effort if I'm still going to suffer anyway? Those are uncomfortable questions, right? But again, we're given permission here. We're given permission to voice the questions that we, that we think, that we feel inside of us. I, I think there is something within the author here that... Uh, it made him hesitate to ask the question even. When we look at verse 15, I think that's where we see it. He said, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And what's he saying there? When he, when he says generation of your children, he's talking about God's people. So he's worried that if he verbalizes these questions, these observations that he has, he's worried that if he verbalizes those things, if he says thus, that God's people are going to begin to waver in their faith and waver in their devotion to him. He's worried that his questions will lead to doubt, basically. And again, don't we worry that too? I mean, if I ask the questions I really want to ask, won't it shake the faith of other Christians? If I ask the questions that I really want to ask, won't it shake the faith of my kids or my grandkids? Won't it shake my faith if I really ask those questions? The thing about those questions, they're not ones we can just push deep down into our souls and pretend they don't exist. I mean, we can try, right? We can try to do that. And maybe for a little bit we'll be successful, but, but those questions exist no matter how far down deep inside we push them. And we have to ask them. And, and, and rather than worry about <clears throat> whether or not we should ask those questions, we ought to instead focus upon to whom we ask those questions, because that's what is crucial. We should ask them, but we need to ask them to the right person, the right place. And when we look around, when we see the wicked prosper and wonder where God is in all of it, it can be tempting to take those questions to places like philosophy or, or take our questions to the culture or take our questions to logic or, or any other number of places. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves, but they can't provide a real answer to those questions. They can try, they can attempt to, but they can't. Cannot provide the answer that is truthful and that we need deep inside of ourselves. And that's why the author, I think, made this statement in verse 16. He said, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Right? He's recognizing these big questions inside of himself. He thinks, Man, this is a huge question and it's wearisome, right? I mean, how do I understand this? And, and I think people can and do come to that place of weariness when they take those questions to philosophy or culture or logic or, or, or anywhere else. 
But there's only one place that we can truly find understanding in this matter. There is only one place. And praise God that the author of this psalm found that place, that he went to that place. So I'll read verse 16 again, and then I'll read verse 17. But when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. I mean, this is the turning point of the psalm right here. He's hopeless in verse 16. It's wearisome. Where am I ever going to find an answer to this question? And he goes into God's presence, and that's where it is. It says, then I discerned their end. When we have questions about God and his ways, the last thing that we should do is run away from God. And instead, I think what we have to do, we have to do what this author does and grab those questions tightly in our fists and we drag them before God because that's where the answer will be found. The understanding, the discernment that we need deep inside of ourselves won't be found anywhere else. It's only found in God. So verse 17 is the turning point, and when it comes to this question about the, the prospering of the wicked, you know, the, he, he ends verse 17 and says, then I discerned their end. So we, I mean, we got to know, right? What, what did he discern? <laughs> what did he find out when he went to God? Well, verse 18. Truly you set them, the wicked, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So when the author went to God, he came to realize that though it seemed like the wicked experienced shalom, they did not. It might have looked like it, that might have been his observation, but that wasn't the reality. And in fact, they were just a moment away from slipping and being swept away and being destroyed. And I just, you know, I, I think about doorbell cameras when it comes to this kind of thing. It's a wonderful invention for so many things. At the top of the list is the endless supply of videos of people slipping on icy steps, right? Now, I'm sure I wouldn't laugh nearly as much if I was the one on camera doing that, but when it's someone else, it's hard not to laugh at that, right? But there's, there's that reality there. It only takes a moment for a person on a slippery surface to go from completely upright to flat on their back, writhing in pain. It happens in an instant. I mean, that's what he sees here. You know, they may be standing upright now, but the situation of the wicked is that they will fall and they will be destroyed. Their prosperity is as real as a dream, as he says. Once the person wakes, the dream's gone. In an instant, it disappears. It will be shown to be the fantasy that it was. So only when the author put himself in God's presence did he come to, to, to discern the true reality of the wicked. It looked like one thing when he was using his own understanding and vision, but when he went before God, he realized it was something else. And so when we look around and when we, when we see the wicked seeming to experience shalom, we have to remember that God is a God of justice, and he will bring that justice fully to bear when the time is right. It will happen. And not only does being in the presence of God give us 
proper discernment of the wicked, but it gives us a proper discernment of ourselves as well. And he goes on to talk about that in verse 21. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So the author recognized that all his worry about the wicked, really what it did was it showed his foolishness. Uh, you know, and in fact, it, when he calls himself uh, brutish in verse 22, he's basically saying he's stupid. Uh, I mean, that, that's the more crass way to say it. That's what he's saying. He, he's saying, I displayed the intellect of an animal when I doubted God's justice the way I did. But even so, even in the midst of his wavering trust in God, he found himself blessed when he went toward God, when he went into God's presence. In God's presence, he says things like, you hold my right hand. You give me counsel. You, you will bring me to glory. And that's what he recognized in God's presence. And it was so transformative that, uh, I mean, I'll read verse 25 again, because it's incredible. He says, Who, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This is an incredible transformation, right? I mean, th this is the same author who earlier in the psalm was so worried about the material prosperity of the wicked. That's why he came before God upset, right? He was so focused on what the wicked had that he didn't have. And now here he is, after being in God's presence, he says, there's nothing in heaven, there's nothing on earth that I desire except you, God. All those things that I was so worried about before, it's nothing. What I desire is you. I mean, what a transformation that he experienced in God's presence. I mean, it makes you wonder what happened exactly when he went into the sanctuary of God. And I, here's what I think happened. I think he saw God, not literally with his physical eyes, but he was in God's presence and, and his focus shifted. His focus shifted entirely because before entering the sanctuary, he was focused on the wicked and their riches and their ease. And, and before entering the sanctuary, he was focused on himself and his lack of riches and his lack of ease. But when he stood before God, that was his focus. His focus was on God. And when, and when his focus was on God, not only did he receive discernment and he understood everything, but his very desires changed. He didn't just get an answer to his question. His question almost became, I don't want to say irrelevant, but he, he realized that, that his focus was wrong. Even the focus that led to that question. God became the strength of his heart. God became his portion forever, as he states. I mean, this psalm begs me to ask the question of myself and begs you to ask the question of yourself, is there anything in this world that I desire above God? 
anything I desire? Is there anything in this world that if I lost it, or if I lost them, but still had God, that I wouldn't be content? I think that's what we're led to ask in this. True shalom, true shalom comes not from the things in our lives, or even from the people in our lives, but from God being in our life. That's the reality. Um, now, now it's painful when the things that we enjoy are taken away from us. Um, it's even more pay- painful when the people that we enjoy are taken away from us. But if our peace is found in those things, or if our peace is found in those people, then we're holding on to a peace that is a moment away from vanishing. I mean, just like the wicked will slip and fall in a moment, so too our peace can leave us in a moment if, if that thing or that person is taken away. So the author began this psalm by stating the truth that God is good to Israel. God is good to his people. But at the beginning of the psalm, he assumed that God's goodness was evident in the material things that that a person possessed. God's goodness was evident through ease in life. That's how he thought about it at the beginning. And, And we can be there, right? We might be tempted to find God's goodness in the list of things that we often give thanks for around the table at Thanksgiving. Right? We're thankful for family, health, provision, protection, right? And those things are blessings from God. Don't, don't hear me wrong. Those are blessings from God, but they're not the epitome of God's goodness. God's goodness towards us resides squarely in his presence with us. That's what the author found out. That's what he discerned. That's why... That's why it was so good that God became flesh and made his dwelling among us, presence. That's why it's so good that God offered himself on the cross to reconcile us to himself and bring us back to himself, his presence. And and, and so we uh, we can read the final summary that the author gives in the last two verses, 27 and 28. So after all of that experience, he says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So for those who are far from God, it doesn't matter what they have around them. Uh, Those far from God shall perish. So we can, we can surround ourselves with all kinds of things and all kinds of people and, and think that it will bring us shalom, bring us goodness. Uh, but the truth is it won't. Uh, it, it just won't. Only when we are near to God will we find that shalom. It's in his pr- it, 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 it is his presence in our lives that, that is true and lasting goodness. That's what the author states here. So, so we can look around at the prospering of the wicked, and we can know that they lack true shalom because they lack nearness to God. It doesn't matter 
how big the bank account is or how shiny the car is or the influence they have. It doesn't matter. If there's, a, if there's a lack of the presence of God, then there is a lack of shalom. And likewise, we can look at our own situation and whatever we might lack from the world's perspective, we can still experience true shalom when we have the presence of God. It doesn't matter how small the bank account is or how many dents are in the car or anything like that. Shalom doesn't come from those things. It comes from God's presence. And, you know, I mean, this is, this is something I can stand up here and, and, and proclaim all day long. It's not until you and I go to God and draw near to him that we will truly experience what the author proclaims in this psalm. There's no way around it. We can only find that shalom by going to him, being in his presence. And the nearness of God, uh, that comes in different ways. Um, and these might sound like Sunday school answers, but, you know, there's a reason those Sunday school answers are typically right. <laughs> right? We, we, we draw near to God when we converse with him, when we talk to him in prayer. We, we draw near to God when we listen to him by reading his word and dwelling upon his word. We draw near to God when we worship him whether that's in song, whether that's in proclamation, whether that's in action and attitude, whatever it might be. We draw near to God when we humble ourselves before him and live according to his commands for us. I mean, all of that is drawing near to God, and all of that is what brings shalom, God's presence. So the promise is Draw near to God and you will find the shalom, the peace that you're looking for. And may we all then be able to proclaim, like the author does in verse 28, for me it is good to be near God. Forget all the other stuff, all right? Those aren't, those aren't going to bring lasting peace. It is good to be near to God. Would you stand with me? Let's come before God. Let's thank him for that truth. Heavenly Father, there's so much in our world that promises so much to us. And if we're honest, every one of us has sought peace in places where we just can't find it. Would you, would you help me to never forget, help all of us to never forget that True peace is only going to be found in you. And God, I, I thank you that it's even possible that you open yourself to us, that we can be with you, be in your presence. All throughout the Bible, we see you taking steps to open yourself to us. And we know that the epitome of that is dying on the cross cleansing us of our sins, that we can be fully and completely in your presence. And so we are so thankful for that, not just for the eternal life that that means for us after we depart from here, but for the shalom that that can bring us here as well. So God, we're thankful. Help us to remind one another that, that peace is found in you. May we encourage one another in that. May we speak hope and truth to one another when the, 
when the glitziness of the world around us shines brightly. God, we thank you for your love as we take time now to sing to you and worship you. We praise you that you are here, that you're in our midst, that there's a peace of shalom here this morning as we worship before you. God, may our desire be more and more for you. May it be transformed like we saw with the writer of Psalm 73 this morning. Change our hearts in that way, God. Pray these things in your name. Amen.